What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Bobby Goodlade is the co-founder and general partner at Forum Capital, an early-stage venture capital firm focused on leveraging their design expertise. Previously, Bobby has made over 50 angel investments and was a former early designer at Facebook. In this conversation, we discuss the importance of design, angel investing, hunting deals, rational versus irrational investors, Facebook, Coinbase, Form Capital, UX, UI, and crypto, and of course, Miami. I really enjoyed this conversation with Bobby, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Circle. Circle is a global financial technology firm that enables businesses of all sizes to harness the power of stablecoins and public blockchains for payments, commerce, and financial applications worldwide. Circle is also a principal developer of USD Coin, or known as USDC, which is the fastest growing, regulated, fully reserved dollar stablecoin in the world, now standing at more than $15 billion market cap and is adding nearly $300 million of net new digital dollars in circulation every single week. The free Circle account and their suite of platform API services bridge the gap between traditional payments and crypto for trading, DeFi, and NFT marketplaces. You can learn more at Circle.com. I've had Jeremy, the CEO, on the podcast before. I'm a really big fan of what they're building, so I highly suggest you go check them out at Circle.com. Stablecoins are going to be a big part of this market moving forward, and Circle's doing a fantastic job. So head on over to Circle.com and let me know what you think. Next up is OKX. Crypto moves fast and many crypto-focused companies can't keep up. Crypto exchanges that cut through the noise are the ones that give you access wherever you are in the world to the cutting-edge projects emerging in this new asset class. If you're looking for an industry leader that gives you access to a huge variety of crypto assets, tools, and services, I'd recommend OKX. As we all know, Bitcoin and other crypto prices can be volatile. If riding these price waves isn't your thing, OKX also lets you earn passive income with your crypto. Earn is OKX's portal to crypto earning opportunities, giving you easy access to DeFi earning protocols without the network fees, as well as other lending and saving opportunities where you can earn up to 15% APY on your crypto. Check out the latest high-yield crypto earning options on OKX Earn. Open up an account at OKX.com POMP. Again, OKX.com POMP. The folks over at OKX have been supporting Bitcoin development, so you know they're good in my book. So head over to OKEX.com POMP. Last but definitely not least are my friends at Exodus. Exodus has been supporting this podcast for a while, so make sure you go check them out. They're leading the world out of the financial system by building beautiful and user-friendly blockchain products. With its focus on design and user experience, Exodus has become one of the most popular and loved cryptocurrency apps. It's supported on both desktop and mobile, allowing you to sync your wallet across multiple devices so you can have access to your funds anywhere. You can instantly exchange around 100 different cryptocurrencies straight from your wallet. Interactive charts let you view an asset's price history and your portfolio's performance over time. And maybe the best part, Exodus is integrated with the Treasure Hardware Wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Visit exodus.com slash pomp for your free download or search Exodus on the App Store or the Play Store. Again, go to exodus.com slash pomp for your free download or search Exodus on the App Store or the Play Store. All right, let's get into this episode with my friend Bobby. I hope that you enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Bobby here. We're basically just going to talk shit the entire time and tell everyone, if you don't live in Miami, you should move here immediately. Just kidding. Uh, what's up, man? How are you? I'm great. And uh, are we kidding? Like, <laughs> Because I think people should move here to Miami. I think they should, too. We will get to Miami in a second. Uh, what did you do before you moved to Miami? Um, and what, out of school, you worked at Facebook first? Uh, I did. Anyways, thanks, Pomp, for having me. And uh, yeah, so my background is I'm a product designer by by trade. Um, right out of school, I, I worked at, at Facebook. I was one of the first product designers there. Um, I was their first designer on the user growth team. So I designed a lot of Facebook's 
kind of onboarding and registration system. So if you sign up for Facebook, kind of 2008 to 2012, give or take, you probably use some of my interfaces. And um, yeah, that's kind of where I started out in my career. So I worked on the uh, on the growth team at Facebook. That's right. We know very a lot of the same people. That's uh, right. They are fantastic. It's probably the best growth team in the world, I would say. I think you would probably agree. Yeah. Um, but you left in 2012? I did. I did. Okay. What, what was the thought process between... Uh, I'm here at Facebook, things are going great, and then you leave to go do other stuff. What like what drew you away? Yeah, I mean, look, to be honest, like Facebook just completely changed my life. It was an incredible opportunity. And and that that user growth team in particular was just pretty legendary. You know, when I when I first joined the company, it was not the sexiest assignment to get. You know, I was joining as a new designer and people wanted to work on, you know, the stuff that's like front and center, the the news feed, the profiles, photos. And to work on the user growth team is like not the most exciting assignment, but it kind of turned out that that team was this this fairly legendary team. We kind of invented in a lot of new uh, design patterns for how to how to build these social networks. Um, but yeah, and then, and then I, I spent about four and a half years at Facebook. Um, totally incredible place. And um, you know, honestly, I was um, I was extremely excited to start uh, angel investing. And um, even had had a specific investment in mind that I wanted to make, but I but I couldn't. And uh, at the time, um, you know, in 2012, if if you wanted to um, do angel investing, um, you weren't really allowed to as a, as an employee at the company. Now, people still did, and I found that out after the fact that that people kind of broke the rules and just didn't tell anybody. And so maybe had that uh, been been known to me, I maybe would have done things differently, but, but yeah, so I, I kind of left to, to start my investing career and, and, you know, kind of in retrospect, I, I think, uh, w- was fortunate that I, I, I left when I did, but, um, again, like I, I owe Facebook just the world because it, it really launched my career. I'm in the exact same boat. I feel like I learned so much at Facebook, uh, given that the user growth team at Facebook and we can joke all we want and be like, oh, they're the best in the world. Like they legitimately are the best in the world at this. Uh, what are some of the things you took away from working with that team? And many of the leadership of that team is still there at Facebook, literally a decade later, right? So what, what were some of the takeaways for you? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think like some of the takeaways were just um, ways of thinking about how to design new user experiences for um, for startups. So um, you know, we came up with this idea. I remember uh, we called it the aha moment, which is that uh, you know when a user is signing up for Facebook, they might be struggling through all these all these all these forms we throw their way. So we kind of ask them for all this information, and it's kind of a lot of work. Um, and then I, I remember we we did this one user test back in the day where we ha- we had someone come in and she was kind of suffering through the the status quo of the onboarding flow, and then. All of a sudden, kind of got to this one screen, which was the screen where we could show the user, here's, here's these folks that you might know. So based on the information uh, she gave us, we could, we could show potential friends from, from high school, from college, from, from her hometown, and just kind of this grid of faces. And then we, we were, I remember we were watching this, and we had like an eye-tracking computer that could see where her eyes were looking on the screen. And then she kind of got to this step, and, and and by the way, had she not been in the user testing lab, she probably would have just given up because she had to go through all these error states, and it was, it was quite a quite a mess to get here. But uh, she got to this screen, and then all of a sudden, her eyes kind of like darted to the friends she knew, and then her eyes like lit up. She kind of leaned into the computer. She was like, "Oh wow, okay, I understand the value of of what of what Facebook is." And so that idea actually got us to completely re-architect the onboarding flow for Facebook. So we reordered steps. We took things that were kind of um, these really onerous steps like confirming your email account. And we put those as far back in the, in the process as we possibly could with, with the idea of like, how do we, how do we kind of um, um, uh, backload the, the work behind uh, the point where the users were like really sold on the value of the product. Mm-hmm. And so like, so, so that was kind of like one, I guess, I guess and we, we kind of, we gave a talk about this idea and, and we kind of, you know, showed the um, kind of before and after. How much of this is like, you just tested a million things and eventually saw this, realized it, and then like execute on it versus this was like a preconceived almost thesis. And then that's why you ran a spe- like this specific test. Yeah. So um, 
a lot of the latter, a little bit of the former. Mm. You know, there are other cases where, for example, we had this registration form, uh, which was like the primary form that that everyone signed up to Facebook through circa 2008, give or take. And uh, it had been A-B tested to death by all these different PMs. And someone said, okay, what if we, what if we kind of put this, um, you know, instruction text here? And what if we put this, you know, this subheader here? And if, if we kind of put clarifying text here and there, um, and then basically over time, the, the, the form had just been kind of, um, you know, layered upon, layered upon, and each successive test had actually gotten to a point where it actually marginally improved the numbers. But then, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the funny things about the success I had at Facebook was that, um, in one afternoon, um, myself and this UI engineer, we were like fed up with this form. We were like, this thing sucks. Like let's, let's redesign it. And so I kind of just did a very basic, uh, cleanup of this thing. Uh, he, he built it. We had the thing test overnight. And in, on the course of like 24 hours, we were able to increase the top level registration rate of Facebook. And this is like in 2008, uh, by something like 5%, just by like cleaning up a bunch of, of, of kind of AB test nonsense. And so, and so sometimes you had, you had these kind of really easy wins that were just like, Hey, let's just apply some some very basic design sensibilities towards this. Other times it was more like, hey, let's let's really zoom out and look at what what the the bigger barriers are here. Like how do we how do we kind of how do we do these bigger architecture projects? Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think it was just a very experimental team, and then also one where the the sort of eyes the rest of the company were were off of us. So we could we could really get away with a lot and just like continually run a lot of tests where, you know, if we wanted to put a, an obnoxiously big green button on things that maybe the other designers would be like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't ship that obnoxiously large green button. Um, but, but they didn't really see these flows because they weren't signing up for new accounts or they weren't using, you know, the blank states of, 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 our, of, our, of our apps. And so um, we were able to kind of get away with a lot of things and, 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 and test a lot of things. And, Along the way, we, we actually really invented a lot of new uh, design patterns. So uh, when I was at Facebook, I was running the growth team for Facebook pages, and uh, you were doing this 2008, 2009. This is now uh, probably 2014 when I'm doing this. And one of the big wins that we had was uh, on the um, kind of mobile web, like the M web or whatever, uh, for really, really old non-smartphone phones, right? So kind of things where you would have to like click, almost like a T9 style. Uh, there would be a header. And so it would be things like, you know, home, profile, whatever. And you would have to click through to get to it. And so we literally one time moved create page from like the 27th slot to like, I don't know, slot eight. And all of a sudden there was an explosion in the creation of pages. And everyone was like, oh my God, this is like amazing. And I remember somebody on the team being like, no one's ever tested this because nobody uses those phones, right? <laughs> right? At right. Facebook, like, like that's such an obscure thing. We right. forget how much traffic and how many users use that very obscure thing. And so, what you just said about this uh, kind of registration page—that's also very unique to Facebook and and was unique in 2008, but became even more unique over time—was just the volume, right? So you could run yes. this test and 24 hours later have a statistically significant result that you knew as long as you ran that test correctly, right? Hey is it better or is it not? Whereas a startup or somebody else, it could take them two months to get enough data, right? right? At Facebook, you got it in 24 hours. And so that iteration speed was just a, a complete superpower, I think, for the growth team. Yeah, and, and one, of the, one of the takeaways from that that I've applied to some of the companies I've worked with uh, since Facebook is that there's a basic idea that the interfaces that the employee base of your company use. So, so if, you're, if you're on the team, you're kind of using the product day in and out, um, those interfaces tend to get refined and optimized just kind of naturally by the very course of employees kind of going about their way. If there's a bug, if there's a bug in kind of the core workflow of your product and employees are using that workflow every day, it'll naturally get fixed. But there's always these interfaces that employees don't use all the time, right? So sign-up flows are like the biggest category of this blank states where it's like, what happens when there's no data in the system and, and, and how do users interface with that? These things break constantly. 
And like that was one of the big takeaways from working on that team at Facebook, which is like we constantly had to do this cleanup work where everything that was in the eyes of the employee base was just totally scrutinized and cleaned up and optimized. Um, later in my career at Facebook, I was the lead designer for Facebook photos. And like I, I redesigned the photo viewer um, and we, we kind of iterated in front of the whole company. We shipped a new version of the photo viewer like every single night for, for, for about a month. And like believe like every, every little detail gets scrutinized, right? But, but when I was on the user growth team, we were changing the signup flow for the products, which is actually far more important if you think about it than, than like, you know, where the buttons go on, on the photo viewer. Um, no one had any feedback whatsoever because they didn't use it. And so that, that, that lesson has, has very much stuck with me. And it's actually almost a cheat code. When, when, I, when I work with some of the companies I work with now, once they're at a, a kind of an established point, um, you know, I, th I, think, I think one of the things you can just tell them is like, ha have your employees go back and like, you know, use the interfaces that they're not regularly using. So have them sign up for the product again and again and again. Have them go through that new user experience again and again and again. And it, things will naturally get refined. Things will naturally evolve. One of the things that I remember taking away from that team specifically was this idea that um, every single test, uh, in order to know if you're right or not, you have to perfectly execute and then be right. And the reason why perfect execution of the way that the, the test is designed is so important is because if you design a test and then you screw up the execution and it doesn't work, you're left wondering, was it the execution of the test that was wrong or was actually the thing we were testing doesn't work, right? And I think that that's when you get into this like very kind of testing heavy, growth heavy type environment, uh, there's plenty of people who yell and scream and say it's horrible, they're at least the bad things, whatever. But at the end of the day, as a as a science, as a way to use software to grow the metrics of a business, bar none, nothing beats that, yes. right? In terms of the actual adherence to truth and the seeking of truth, right? Yes. And, and kind of this belief that like the code wins the argument or the data wins the argument. And I think that's probably the thing that you took away from Facebook and I definitely took away was just like that organization and that team specifically is, um, I think, unrivaled in their like pursuit of that truth. Yes. And I think it gave me a very good anchoring in product design as a, as a discipline. I think a lot of folks think about design in a very um, unserious way. They think about it as this more artistic pursuit. It's about making things look pretty. And I, I've never really had that attitude. I've, I've always had the mindset, design is about solving problems. It's about kind of taking in a set of constraints and, and, and coming up with a solution that satisfies all those constraints. And then I think in an environment like that early Facebook uh, user growth team, um, that that really forces one to 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 say, okay, is my design solving the, the problem that's on the on the table here, and, and we should be able to measure that. And I think um, that designers should really welcome that that level of, of instrumentation and that level of metrics. So uh, I think this is after you left. The data point that I always tell people to kind of hint at, like just how data driven the organization is, uh, is this is now 2015, I think. Um, they were trying to measure sentiment on Facebook. And how do you move sentiment? How do you measure that, right? So what they essentially did was they created a metric called CAU, C-A-U, uh, and it was the response to a survey question that was, does Facebook care about users? So cares about users, C-A-U. And what they would do is they would basically show you various experiences or, or products or functionality or whatever, and then they would hit you with the uh, survey. Right. And they had surveyed you before, and then they survey you after. And what was so fascinating about this was they could not move the freaking metric. Interesting. They could not move it, right? And so I'm getting like a, a crash course in this, and I'm like, this is absolutely fascinating. Right. You have what is not a data-driven problem. It's usually more of like a psychological uh, or, or sentiment-driven problem, but they're trying to measure it. And so what ultimately ended up being one of like the, the breakthroughs of this entire uh, exercise was uh, somebody put an inter uh, interstitial at the top at, of the um, uh, kind of news feed, and I forget what it was, I don't know, happy birthday or whatever, but they signed it from all of us at Facebook. From all of us at Facebook. Survey, bam, cow moves this metric for the first time. Oh, interesting. And everyone's like, whoa, 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 what was it? Like what moved, you know, and, and you can just imagine like now all of a sudden like there's movement, right? And everyone's getting really excited and trying to figure it out. And so they pin it down to from all of us at Facebook. That one phrase 
ended up moving sentiment and and increasing people's belief that Facebook cared about the user. Right. And so in hindsight, I remember looking back and saying like, wow, you never, there, there is no path that you get to other than pure uh, probability just working in your favor of coming up with Facebook uh, from all of us at Facebook that would endear a more positive view of a company unless you have that data-driven approach and you're actually measuring things right. and doing all this. But it's the adherence to like such a data-driven approach that not only makes Facebook Facebook, but it's what led to billions of users using the product, right? right. And, and right. things that you did on the design side go hand in hand with that, which I don't think people really kind of think of design and data really being the way that, uh, that it works. Yeah, it's actually funny you um, kind of mentioned that, um, that change of uh, messaging tone because you know, way back in the day, we had we had some philosophies around what the voice of Facebook should be like, and it wasn't it wasn't that tone that you described. It was actually <laughs> far more, you know, like this is meant to be more like an operating system and less like a person speaking to you. And I, I kind of I had left the company at this point, but I do remember like at a certain point, uh, you know, call it two thousand and fourteen, two thousand fifteen where I started seeing different um, different styles of messaging coming from Facebook speaking to users. I was like, hang on a sec, what's going on here? And so there you go, that's the explanation. Close the loop for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so you leave Facebook 2012 um, and you wanna go invest. Uh, I know the story, so I'm cheating, but tell us a story about like, what are the first two investments that you go do? Yeah, well, the first one was a payments company, which which um, I think I was in the right um, the, the right general uh, strike area, but didn't hit, didn't hit Stripe. Uh, second one, uh, I, was, I was fortunate enough to invest in, into Coinbase. And so that was my second ever angel investment. Um, I was actually uh, not liquid in the seed round uh, in, in 2012, but um, uh, as soon as I kind of became liquid from Facebook uh, in, in at the start of 2013, I, I made my second ever angel investment into into Coinbase. Okay, how do you find Coinbase? Why do you know that, hey, I should do this? And then explain this hunting process that you went through to track it down. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a great, and it's something where I think, like as an investor, I think it's really important to like study what your circle of competence is. How, how do you find deals? And, and try to remember those things with like a certain amount of clarity. So like these days I write deal memos with every investment I make so that when I look back in time, I can remember what my thought process was like when I made the investment. Back then, unfortunately, I didn't do these things. But but yeah, I mean, I was basically a, a little bit of a Bitcoin nerd in 2012 um, and um, was was in the r slash Bitcoin subreddit. And and I think, you know, had bought my first Bitcoins, had to buy them through Mt. Gox, for those of us who remember Mt. Gox. And, um, and I, I really do think that... Um, um, for me, when Coinbase came around, it felt more like an obvious, um, an obvious improvement relative to Mt. Gox. I think for anyone who was who was in the community at that time, uh, who had kind of suffered through the terrible user experience of Mt. Gox, uh, to contrast that with with what Coinbase offered was 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 really quite quite compelling. And so that that's kind of become one of my theses around how, how do I find these new breakout companies. I like to call it uh, communities which see the future. So, and I think I've been maybe part of two of these, maybe three of these throughout my career. So the first one was 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 with Facebook, where I was lucky enough to be a college student when Facebook started. And so I think if you were in college at the time when it was college only, no no one outside of colleges could use Facebook. Um, we all had this sort of glimpse of the future. And, and if you'd asked people in college in you know, 2006, 2007, like, hey, do you think everyone's going to start using this Facebook thing? They would probably say yes. Versus if you talk to somebody who was on the outside who didn't have access to Facebook, they might just scratch their heads and not really understand what you're talking about. And so, so I think like there's this, you know, there's this famous quote by William Gibson, uh, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I think of that in like very literal terms. So when I was in when I was in college, I was I was kind of fortunate enough to be in this bubble of the future, which used Facebook, and then it became somewhat of a foregone conclusion to us inside of that bubble, like, hey, this is going to expand to encompass a lot more people, maybe everybody. And then and then I had a similar feeling with um, with, with Bitcoin in 2012, and, and and with Coinbase in particular, which is like, well, I thought Bitcoin was kind of this bubble of the future unto itself, but then even within that, I thought. 
hey, like it just seems pretty obvious to me that like people are going to use Coinbase over something like Mt. Gox. And so at a minimum, like this thing has some legs in terms of uh, getting onto that level of market share. Now, did I know in 2013 that, that it would it would ultimately rise to where it is today? No, but um, but I think that that lens of like you know what which kind of bubbles of the future am I privy to? You know what what part of the future am I seeing that is maybe yet to be distributed to everybody? And I think like for a lot of folks, if you really if you really kind of spend some time thinking about it, you can actually come up with some pretty interesting answers. Yeah. And when you start to think about how to identify that, do you have to be in the community to know that that community knows something? Or is it possible for an outsider to understand? Yeah. I mean, obviously it helps, right? <laughs> and and um, and uh, there, there is something about that, you know, kind of kind of firsthand experience where where um, you kind of feel like a bit like an underdog and, and you just know this thing's going to uh, gonna gonna do really well, and, and then you, you see these people on the outside who just don't quite get it, and there's something quite special about that. But yeah, I do think that um, you can sort of systematically hunt for folks who have um, who who are part of these communities of the future. Um, um, it's it's a little bit more difficult because I do I do really feel like um, um, at least for myself, my, my own experience. Um, I think that the best wins are going to come from where you can um, authentically engage in something and actually get genuinely curious and excited about it. I think like one of my criticisms, well, this isn't a criticism per se of, of of kind of the venture capital world, but like it's one of my dissatisfactions with how some folks approach the space, which is I think I think people don't get genuinely excited about the things they invest in, right? And and um, when when someone like truly um, find something they actually care about and, and, they, and they really just get fired up about it. Like that's, that's almost rare. And when someone's a professional investor and they're kind of, you know, tasked with, with hunting down these things and, 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 and kind of putting out a number of investments on a regular interval, um, I think that that passion, that, that, um, that falling into that, 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 that special community that sees the future, like that doesn't happen. That, that's a more rare feeling. Um, and so and even when you're like, when you're, um, when you're, when you're a professional investor, when you're uh, getting a lot of inbound deal flow, it's very hard to get, you know, deeply immersed in everything you're seeing because you're, you're seeing so many pitches back to back to back. Um, but then, I, you know, for my personal successes in my, in my career, each one has really fit this pattern of like, yeah, I, I was kind of part of this, this early community of folks that, uh, that really, um, Saw the future and uh, like it was almost a, a, a sure thing to us when we were inside that bubble. So how do you go from Bitcoin is going to be a thing to I'm an investor in Coinbase? Like, What's the actual process? Yeah, I mean, um, I get, maybe this is also um, my design background uh, coming into play here, but um, um, I really uh, I really bias towards uh, thoughtfully designed interfaces. Um, interfaces that reduce friction. Um, if you, you have to ask me like, what's the, what's the easiest way, what's the most straightforward way to make a product that's 10 times better? I think an answer that I would give you, although it's like kind of easier said than done answer is um, just, just create a 10 times better user experience, right? And again, it's, it's easier said than done answer. So for example, one of my companies uh, these days is a company called Linear and they're, uh, they're a competitor to Jira. The, the task management uh, productivity tool uh, company. And uh, there's like a million little reasons why I could tell you why Linear is like so much better than Jira. Um, and it's very hard to put your finger on it, but I think they all kind of sum up to this experience that is actually 10 times better. So design is kind of this cheat code in some ways to, to creating a product that is um, meaningfully better than, than an incumbent product. That was certainly the case with Coinbase relative to Mt. Gox back in the day. And again, you could kind of like, you could kind of document every single reason why, um, you know, I, I, and in retrospect, a big reason why is because Mt. Cox turned out to be a scam. But um, 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 that helps when you're not a scam and your competitor is a scam. Turn, yeah, it turns out that's a good that's a good competitive advantage. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I generally think that like focusing on user experience, focusing on design really matters. Um, I think especially in financial services companies like Coinbase, where um, design is, is kind of a, a shortcut to communicating trust. So 
you know, even before we knew Mt. Gox was a scam, it kind of just screamed scam when you looked at it because the design was was terrible. It, it just looked like something that was a scam. And so if you start from a point where you actually have thoughtful, considerate design, um, um, that that communicates to a user a, a certain degree of trust. And then and then you just have to make good on it not being a scam part, and then and then you're good. So step one is don't create a scam. Step two is don't make it look like a scam. <laughs> right, right, right. And I can't help you if, if it's if it is a scam. I'm not going to help you with step two. But like, but yeah, I mean, but I, but when you see Coinbase and you're like, okay, this is beautifully designed, right? I think what's so fascinating is uh, my understanding is a number of the best investments you've made. It was not like somebody called you up and was like, hey, Bobby, we're like doing a fundraiser around. Like, do you want to participate? You were just starting out as an investor, and so you right. had to go hunting. You had to go get an introduction to the founder. You had to go and, and convince them to take your money. Like walk through that process and and why you were so willing to go do the the work to go hunting. And this is something that's like really high on my mind right now because as I've evolved in my career as an investor, I kind of naturally get more inbound deal flow. Like I get I get a lot of people sending me deals right now, and then I always have to balance that against the fact that hey, my best deal I ever did was not a deal that flowed to me. It was a deal that I found out about and I go, I went and knocked on the door and, and got into the deal. I would call that spearfishing, right? And I think in, in venture capital in general, we talk a lot about deal flow and we think about deal flow as like so much a, a part of the game that you, you know, but I, I honestly think that um, it can be a, a double-edged sword and um, I think I think some investors do better in different environments. And so for myself, like when I was first starting out as an investor, nobody knew who I was. No one was sending me deals. I got no deal flow. But what that does is that affords a certain amount of kind of white space where I can get genuinely excited about things. I could spend all these hours on R slash Bitcoin. I didn't have pitch meeting after pitch meeting to get to take up my time. And so you could find this genuine curiosity, this genuine excitement, and then oh, well, here you go. Like, here's this new company, Coinbase. I've been in this community for a few months. Mt. Gox is terrible. I really need to do anything I can to go, to go get into this deal. And, and I, I think that that, that mode of, of spearfishing is, is a really compelling alternative to this idea of, um, you know, I'm just going to have this gravitational pull of deal flow and, and have everyone come pitch me. When, what did you do to get an introduction to Brian? Yeah, yeah. So again, I, I I leaned heavily on my background as a designer, and I had a I had a friend of ours um, um, make an introduction, and um, you know basically I, I spent um, two or three uh, sessions in the office just like helping them on their their new user account flows on some very basic kind of um, onboarding um, interfaces for for very early Coinbase, and then I said, hey, you know, look, I just made my first. Angel investment, I'd love to make my second one into this. Like, can I, can I get into the next round? And they said, sure, no problem. And I think that idea of, um, of, um, of, of, of offering something very specific, in, in my case, like a very, a very minor amount of design support, which wound up kind of widening. And over the years, I, I helped them recruit a couple of designers. I connected them to two different design firms. Uh, later did like a more intensive uh, onboarding review for, for, for them. And, and then they... They, they kind of rewarded me with that, with with allowing me to invest, uh, you know, more capital into later rounds, and then ultimately uh, was able to raise an SPV into the last round before they went public, and um, just all by the all by the virtue of um, kind of spending a little bit of time and help helping them with something that I was I was kind of uh, you know relevant and informed to help them about. And so when you think about that deal and when you deployed capital, obviously you're going to have some hindsight bias, but do you think it's a fifty billion dollar company, or do you think it's like, hey, maybe they can, you know, grow and they'll get bought at a hundred million? Like, like what's kind of the upper bound of what you think that potential investment has at the time? Yeah, and that's like, so I don't think I was. I think if I'm being honest, I didn't have these sorts of um, um, thought exercises full, fully established in my head as an investor when I did it. But that's part of how I think about investing now, which is, um, I think, a really important question whenever you see an opportunity is. Um, you have to ask yourself, like, what if what if this goes perfectly right? Uh, which I know sounds like a silly thing to say, and and um, it, it might seem particularly naive for for a Silicon Valley investor to say something like that. Um, but I think um, 
I think the default for most people is that they default to uh, cynicism and skepticism. Mm-hmm. And and when you when you pitch someone a new idea, I think most people will start shooting down the reasons why it it won't work. And those are really important to capture. And like as an investor, you need to have that skepticism. You need to be able to do that level of you know intellectual rigor. Uh, you need to be able to apply that towards the idea. Um, but but before you do any of that, I think it's really important just to imagine that. Um, you know, kind of unicorns and rainbows scenario where everything goes right. And what that does is that it, it, it basically lets you ask the question, like how much will this, like where does this, where does this uh, peter out? Like where does this end? And I think for, for many ideas, um, you will find, you will, you will come up with some kind of cap where you say, okay, I think if this thing goes really well, this is this kind of enterprise SaaS company and I think it could get to this level of recurring revenue and that would make, it worth this amount of money, and this is what the world looks like when when everything goes right for this company. And when you could find yourself coming up with like a very concrete cap, and 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 thereby kind of coming up with a a pretty concrete um, expected value calculation about it, I tend to shy away from those things versus going after things that I think have potentially uncapped outcomes. Where when I start assessing, okay, okay, what if this thing starts going right, and like, okay. And then with something like Coinbase and with Bitcoin in general, you start getting into these scenarios in your head where really you have to start thinking about like how governments are going to start responding to this thing. And that's that's a really good sign when you, when you start to... If it's big enough for the government to be worried about it, then you probably did it right as an investor. <laughs> yeah, like that, that probably enters in this uncapped category outcome. And um, and and yeah, I think um, those, those are worth, worth swinging at because again, it all comes back to this sort of... I like to call it a fuzzy expected value calculus where uh, again, like I think a lot of the, a lot of mistakes a lot of investors make are, are that they're kind of overly scrutinous of ideas. They kind of shoot them down. And then the only thing is, the only thing that gets to the filter are these more capped outcomes. They're, they're more sure bets. And um, you know, when they, when they work, they, they sure they can, they can result in some great outcomes. Um, but, but what I found in practice is that um you know the, the the failure rate between the um, these sort of kind of smaller base hit capped outcomes, and the failure rate between that and, and these um, kind of grand slam, um, you know, launch the ball into orbit outcomes, um, it's actually not terribly different. And um, if you're going to take the risk on investing in something that can go to zero and, and that that takes on a lot of the same style of risks, regardless of what the startup is. Uh, you might as well like really swing, really swing for the fences. Yeah, one of the things that to me is just absolutely fascinating is uh, being rational is actually a hindrance to making good investments because what you're essentially doing is you're looking for something that's doing something different and right, and so it's an outlier, and therefore it's irrational. And so if you're a rational person evaluating something from a rational standpoint, in most cases, you're going to miss the absolute most asymmetric things, right? You're definitely going to find things that are less likely to lose money. So it's, you know, low probability of losing money or lower probability, but the upside is capped. The more irrational you are, actually the higher the asymmetry is, but the lower probability of success. And as a venture investor, you want the latter, you don't want the the former. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, I also I also think that um, things that might feel really irrational um, can actually you can, you can flip over in your head to having a real rational belief in them if you can just get past this like one like immediate point of skepticism, which is again why, why I think I think it, it's almost a cliche in if you talk if you talk to folks who work at these larger venture capital firms and they, they kind of hire um, you know like a, a junior person to come onto the team and, and they go to their first partner meeting. It's almost a cliche that this new person will just like start firing at all these reasons why uh, the idea that's on, on the on the table will fail, and it's really easy to do that. It's actually like it's, and I think like it's table stakes for any investor is to be able to kind of come up with this list of of um, of criticisms, and like it's it and it's it's a very again it's a very it sounds very silly to say this, but I think it, it actually is a worthwhile mental exercise to just like put those to the side and say. What if everything goes right? And like, let's just pretend for a moment. What does that scenario look like? Because at least that gives you this this like upside calculation where you could start to get this fuzzy expected value calculation. Because 
again, like the downside risk of all these things is the same. You're, you're, the downside risk is you lose all your money. Um, and so when, 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 you, when you find one of these things where you just can't even imagine how big the upside case is, even if the odds are quite slim, it, it, it tends, those tend to be things worth swinging at, especially when you're constructing a, you know, um, a balanced portfolio. When you think about uh, investing, you obviously are good at it. You've had a number of hits. Uh, you now have started an actual fund, right? Form Capital. We can talk about that. Uh, what is it that you enjoy about this? Like, 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 why do you enjoy it? Why did you not go and join another company and say, hey, I'm going to go find you know, Facebook 2.0 and, um, and, and kind of go do this all over again? Why, why have you spent so much time investing? Well, part of it is that I think I'm a, li- a bit scatterbrained. I really do enjoy um, going from um, working on a healthcare startup to working on a crypto startup to working on um, uh, you know, a social game. And uh, I like, I like, as a designer, I, I really love getting involved in these companies and, and kind of just trying on a new set of problems and seeing how I can, I can resolve them. And so that somewhat speaks to our model with this new fund. So we're, we're a very small seed fund. We're kind of a supporting fund. So we invest alongside other investors typically. Um, and then beyond just a check, we offer what we call uh, a design sprint. So with every with every investment, we offer roughly 40 hours of hands-on design support. So we have a small team of designers on staff that that works with our founders. And that's what makes it interesting to me because if, if I was just kind of writing a check and giving a wave bye-bye, I think, I think it wouldn't be as meaningful, wouldn't be as exciting to me, wouldn't be as fulfilling. I think investing in a lot of in a lot of ways, is getting more commoditized. That's a good thing. Um, and so for myself to kind of make it exciting, to make it interesting, I, I really want to have that partic- participatory um, aspect to it. And that's kind of what I found with this, with this new fund. Uh, the fund structure is very unique in that uh, you intentionally are keeping the fund rather small. You're intentionally having a pretty large GP commit. Walk through just like, why are you doing things different, right, than let's say a traditional fund would do? You obviously, you're very well connected. You've got a great track record. You could probably go raise, you know, $50, $100 million funds very easily. Like, why go after this specific strategy? Right, right. So I think there's like, there's kind of two pieces to the fund. One is like the value add, which is very exciting to me. It's kind of the reason why I do it. And then then there's the economics of it. And um the economic side of it also informs um, how I'm thinking about being an LP in other funds. So um, I'm an LP in about 15 different small seed funds all around the same um, fund size as mine. And um, I, I generally have this, 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 this current market thesis around um, seed stage capital, which is that um, obviously we're all seeing an abundance of, 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 of capital flow into this environment. Um, there are a lot of funds that are lead check writing funds. So meaning they've raised, let's call it between 50 and $80 million. And when you raise a fund of that size, you wind up having to invest at a certain check size with every deal. And, uh, you know, typically that would, for a seed fund, that would be something on the order of like a million five per deal. And what I've seen just firsthand is there's a lot of competition to be that lead investor. I think there's a certain degree of uh, adverse selection challenges that come with that. In other words, um, if you can't be the lead investor, uh, it's a it's a binary proposition. You're either in the deal or you're not. Uh, versus these smaller fund managers and angel investors who put in these these smaller checks. Um, let's say they put in a 200k check as opposed to a a $1.5 million check, um, they tend to get access to the deals that they want to invest in. And when they want to deploy an amount of capital into a deal, they tend to secure that allocation. Um, versus someone writing a, running a lead fund may more often than the smaller investor get rebuffed entirely. Or, or if the lead investor says, hey, I would like to invest a million five, and the founder comes back to them and says, how about 200K? Well, that's kind of fatal to that investor. Like you can't make the fund math work on an investment that size versus if someone who's running a smaller fund comes to them and says, hey, I'd like 300K. And the fund manager comes back and says, how about 200? 
Well, you can kind of make that work. You can still return the entire fund. And so when I think about um, how, how to structure um, both my LP checks throughout the industry um, and also how to structure my own fund in terms of like, how, how do I how do I maximize the returns that I want to pursue? I think it's, it's really important to be able to invest every time I want to be able to invest. And I think if you're running a lead fund in seed, you need to have a very, I think you need to be very, very honest with yourself and ask yourself, am, am I able to invest every time I want to invest? And I, 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 I'm increasingly seeing uh, that answer as no. And um, again, I think like some of these, uh, some of these uh, seed funds that I'm LPing are probably some of the, the smartest investment checks I'll ever write. I actually feel, I feel very similarly about the LP checks that I'm writing right now as I did about the angel checks I wrote eight years ago. It has a very similar um, kind of feeling to me about it. Um, and um, I kind of like this, this strategy. We, we call it like a nano fund strategy. Um, what does that mean? Uh, sub $15 million funds. Got it. So sub $15 million, not lead. How many companies on average do you think go into these funds? It depends. Our our structure is a little bit more weighted in that we, we like to put kind of um, more wood behind fewer arrows, but I've invested in other um, smaller managers who do, you know, 60, 60 deals per fund, which I think is too much, but but even so, it, it's a it's a very big difference to me when you're, when you're able to get the allocation you ask for. I think that's it's almost like the most critical thing in terms of being a fund manager, where it's like, it's, it's like when you talk about investing, you know, you, you kind of have to um, see the deal, right? You have to say yes to the deal, and then you have to win the deal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, let's just say that, you know, the, those first two things are somewhat, somewhat table stakes in the sense that like, okay, you have to have, you have to have good deal flow or, or kind of nowhere to look. And, and um, you have to have good judgment and you have to say yes to the thing that's going to work. Um, th- this latter category is like, is so much in control by the structure of how you, how you run your business, right? Again, if, you know, investing is, is, is um, you know, startup investing is like one of the few uh, forms of investing where the asset picks the manager, right? What and, do you mean by that? Well, again, it's it's not enough for me to say, oh, I, I think this startup's really great. I want, I'm going to go invest in it. Well, they might tell you, well, great. There's no allocation for you, right? Or we don't like you. Or we don't like you, <laughs> or, or any other things, right? And so, and so, and so, I think a lot of a lot of um, investors focus on things like um, again, like how do I maximize deal flow? How do I how do I think about picking skills? I think a really important quality of any good investors they're being picked skill. Right. And then there's like, I think there's the two dimensions I can think of offhand to, to optimize for that is like, um, have something valuable to offer. You know, we, we've kind of, we've kind of gone with this design value offering and we, we think that's compelling. And then two, like, you know, just structurally position yourself such that you can, you can be accommodated into these rounds. And, and when you have to eat up the whole thing, well, that's just going to limit the number of opportunities you can pursue. And so hopefully one of those lead checks you know, a, a lead writer will write, will wind up, you know, kind of um, being the grand slam they hope it is. But for, for myself, for my style of investing, I really like to structure myself in a way where where I'm focused on like finding things that I really enjoy, uh, that I really want to invest in. And I don't like optimizing for like doing this battle royale with some other startup investor, like who's going to lead the deal. Like I don't want to get into that competition, mm-hmm. and so and and nor do I want the found the um, the fund managers that I back to be involved in that competition. I'd rather just kind of get into everything interesting and 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 kind of I think I think go um, you know kind of an inch deep and a mile wide in 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 this category. When you think about um, crypto, it's something that seems like you're dabbling a little bit in. It's intellectually stimulating. The design is horrendous, right? We spend a lot of time talking about early stage investing. Crypto is everything we just talked about on steroids, asymmetry, uh, weirdness, you know, all this kind of stuff. What is going on with the design, the user experience, the user interfaces? Like one, why is it so atrocious? And two, like, do you expect it to get better? Well, it is getting better. And okay. like, I think, and again, um, maybe this is, you know, me having a hammer and thinking everything <laughs> is a nail. But I can really track the the 
ease of use of crypto and the, and I think I think runs in complete correlation with the mainstream adoption of it. As as you've seen either either companies or um, or projects that have extended um, extended the user base of crypto, I think they all have one thing in common, which is they 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 tend to be well designed. They tend to be they, they tend to value user experience. And I think there's 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 a few cases of like some more esoteric, um, highly technical use cases evolving that um, uh, I think can be very financially lucrative, and that can drive adoption as well. But when we're talking about like the mainstream, um, a general public adopting crypto, uh, I think design has almost always been the limiting factor and will kind of continue to be for a long time. And so, again, that's that's why it was very exciting for me to back Coinbase back in the day because I saw that as like this this really enabling factor for crypto overall. And I think a lot of folks in crypto really have a bias towards thinking about um, the technology, the protocols, the, the um, you know, the kind of technical developments going on in the space is like, that's, that's what's, that's what's creating the, 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 the adoption. But I think you really have to give credit to folks that, um, that, that make this easy to use, that, that make it accessible to everybody. Folks like Coinbase um, who, who have, brought so many more people into the crypto universe. Is that probably the number one limiting factor to more mainstream adoption is just the user experience, the user interfaces of these products? I think so. And and I think um I think in general, like design tends to um, you know, follow behind the the technical developments. In other words, like there's a few projects where um I think I think the end user experience becomes a goal at which the, the technology gets warped to accommodate, but that's kind of the exception, not the norm. In other words, like the technology is kind of created as it, as it exists. And then it's up to the designers to try to, you know, bang this thing into shape to actually make it easy to use. And I think, I think some of the, you know, some of the most exciting projects that I see on the horizon are ones that, that really think about, like, how do we make this easy to use from, from the get-go? And it feels almost like the idea of crypto is so antithetical to like the way people have thought historically that already you're asking people to make a big leap on like the philosophical or um, kind of the, the point of whatever the product or service is. And so the more you can make the design uh, in some ways similar to what they're used to, right? Being user ver uh, very user-friendly, being easy to uh, quickly sign up, being able to understand, hey, if I click on that tray, I know exactly what the action is going to be uh, inside the app. Like that seems to be uh, in some ways missing, but also like the lowest hanging fruit. Again, earlier you said like this idea of like design is the fastest way to kind of build trust or, or, or uh, signal trust. In crypto, like where else do you need that with some of these products than, you know, that industry? Right. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, um, oftentimes it's, it's a, it's a smart idea to maybe build an interface that, um, that borrows heavily on, um, kind of a mainstream, uh, financial interface that folks might already be familiar with that, that maybe has to be a bit shoehorned into crypto, but, but, but if it's something that people can immediately grok and understand, like it's, it's almost worth having that, um, that simplification, that reduction to just in order to get people to, to understand it. And I think, I think sometimes we build, uh, we really reinvent the wheel. We build highly technical interfaces when uh, a more simplistic reductive interface, maybe something that hides some of the options that people don't necessarily need to tweak um, is going to be the better choice. And how much of um, what you're looking at in crypto is like infrastructure. So like Coinbase is an exchange, it's a piece of infrastructure there's hundreds of other pieces of infrastructure versus more like protocols, tokens, and like what I'll consider like more of the extreme end of crypto. That's not necessarily infrastructure. It's kind of more the quote unquote new stuff. Right. Well, I'm, I'm looking at a smattering of things right now. Um, at the moment, I have like very specific, um, there's like specific apps that I want to exist and okay. I'm like hunting for those. Do, do you want to share them so that people can come inbound or no? Um, um, you don't have to. Yeah. I mean, um, give us one. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and I'm already looking at some things in this category as well. So, so, uh, I don't necessarily need a bunch of inbound pitches, but, <laughs> but, but please, you know, Bobby at formcapital.com, please drop me a line. Um, so if you think about 
Bitcoin as creating a sense of digital scarcity. And obviously there's a financial product attached to that with Bitcoins. I think something about this whole NFT explosion that's excited me is this idea of, can we take objects in the physical world that already have real world scarcity and can we digitize them? Can we financialize them? And so for example, um, collectible cars, uh, uh, trading cards, collectible watches, these things in a sense already have a scarcity algorithm, if you will. In other words, in 1952, Mercedes made only so many 300 SL going cars, right? And so the, 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 the minting for that, for that car has already happened in the past. And so as, as, you, as you look at, at, at digital currencies as sort of this means of creating artificial scarcity and then mapping a financial instrument to that, can we take actually scarce physical objects and then pair them with a digital token, uh, maybe a fractionalized digital token, and then make that into a financial instrument? So that's, that's like one thing that I'm kind of broadly interested in. And that's really trying to anchor physical goods in the digital world, but still be able to prove uh, kind of provenance over it and also the the scarcity, uh, the who originally made it, created it, where to trade hands, et cetera. But it's a physical item, not a digital item, but the digital world still kind of uh, respects or acknowledges the physical item. Yeah, and I think like in terms of um, this becoming an asset class, I think... Um, you know, maybe a lot of your listeners would agree that gold is sort of under fire as 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 taking this this hedging position in people's portfolios, and something like Bitcoin offers a pretty interesting alternative. But I can even imagine a future where there's a basket of actually scarce, kind of provably scarce goods, some of them digital, some of them physical, that that replace uh, what has been gold. Maybe gold is a, a piece of this basket, but it's it's not the entire basket, and so. Um, this this idea of like financializing scarce assets is interesting to me. All right, we're, we're recording in Miami. We're in person. Uh, I think you may be one of the only people other than like Keith and Delian who uh, who like Miami more than I do. <laughs> uh, why did you move to Miami? And then what are your thoughts so far? Yeah. So, um, well, so far it's been it's been fantastic. As to why I as to why I moved, um, I've lived in, I lived in San Francisco for about ten years. Um, and kind of just watched this wave emerge starting in last November and kind of got to the point in December where I was like, you know what? This seems pretty fun. Um, a lot of people I respect are coming here. Why not take a bit of a flyer on this? And then if I don't like it, I can kind of, you know, go back with with my tail between my legs. And, um, we kind of got here in, in January and have, have really just only seen, upside from this have been, have just been uh, tremendously happy about the move. Um, you know, one, one kind of thought process I had was for myself as an investor, you know, I could be one of thousands upon thousands of small new seed funds in the Bay Area, or I can be one of a tiny handful here, be part of this, this kind of exciting wave. It feels like very rebellious, very, um, very exciting. There's, there's a lot of camaraderie about it. Um, and um, you know, have have the mayor hype us up, and um, and and I said, yeah, it's like it's almost a no brainer. And um, again, I, I really have um, I've, I've really felt very little downside to the move so far, and, and a whole ton of upside. A lot of friends of mine kind of told me, you know, you'll you'll move here, and then you'll just kind of be kind of bored to tears. You're you're gonna meet all these pretty boring people, and it's been the exact opposite. It's like I've had I've had interesting person after interesting person kind of come into my life. My, my, my calendar is completely booked like in terms of deal flow, in terms of um, work. It's, it's, I've never been busier. And um, that's very much taken me by surprise. And um, it, just makes, it just kind of makes it all the more exciting. So the two things I always tell people is one, people who moved here are not moving here to retire. Right. People are moving here with a chip on their shoulder and they're here to work. And uh, that alone, you can feel the energy when you're here, when you're meeting with people, et cetera, is that uh, the folks who are here are not going to stop until this is successful. Yeah. Uh, and then two is, uh, I think you're very similar to me in that like, I'm just happier here. Yes. Right. And I literally don't know if it's as stupid as like, it's sunny all the time. 
right? And so therefore you're happy. I don't know if it's because it's a new place. I don't know if it's because somehow I'm uh, eating healthier food. Like I, I, I literally have no clue, right? I just know that when I'm here, I feel happier than anywhere else. Yeah. And that alone is the reason for me to be like, yes, I should live here. And we all want to make it work. And I think like that is like, if I had to pitch a founder on coming here and, and starting their company here, as opposed to the Bay Area, I think that the camaraderie and the, the kind of um, the, the, this like unified sense of like, hey, we, we're all trying to make this thing happen. And, and so you're, you, you wind up getting a lot of support and contribution from people who, if this was all back in the Bay Area, like, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't give you the time of day. But because we're all just like trying to make this thing happen, um, it's really, it's really a, a, an awesome feeling. It's something I haven't felt in this industry um, since maybe like 2010. And uh, I remember like going to, you know, going to parties in San Francisco, like 2011, at, like the, the Airbnb people, they, they had like house parties, like, okay, kind of similar vibes to what I'm feeling here. Or like South by Southwest circa 2008, where it was a small enough community, you can kind of get to know people, you can, you can, I've, I've kind of converted a lot of um, online friendships to in-person friendships, this, you know, ourselves included. And like, it's awesome. It's like, um, there's honor among thieves, right? That, that's the way I think about right. it, right? Is we're all in this together. <laughs> right. Right. And it does feel like a little bit of a rebellion. Like it feels, and, and, you know, there's, there's people who really, um, take umbrage with this. Um, and that kind of makes it more fun. You know, I saw, I saw today that, um, Tyler Cowan had an article where he's, you know, um, not, not so excited about Miami being a tech hub. And I'm like, you know, I respect the hell out of Tyler Cowan, but like almost the, almost the, the doubters give us some, some amount of energy. I was going to say that literally means we're onto something. Right. 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 It's kind of like a startup. If you keep hearing no a bunch of times, you're probably onto something right more so than not. Uh, if you're right. And, uh, same thing here. It's like the more people yell and scream, are like, no, it can't happen. No, it can't happen. It actually convinces me like it's going to happen. Right. There's a certain amount of like self-compounding narrative to this uh, that 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 people who are, uh, you know, very vigorously against it. I think they don't fully appreciate how much they contribute towards it. Um, um, and then I think it just leaves folks like yourself and, and me to just be generally positive about it, because, the, again, the, I'm, I'm only seeing positives. And um, it's just such a it's such a fun thing to be part of and, and such an easy a uh, welcoming community to join uh, that uh, it's just a really fun, fun thing to do. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I got three questions before we end. You could ask me one. First is what's the most important book you've ever read? Um, Man, I didn't get any notice no prep. this is coming. Yeah. So um, there's a book called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. Okay. It's, a, it's kind of a um, psychology slash philosophy book. Um, why, why is that one stick out to you? Um, I think it, it helps explain and frame how people think and how, um, you know, our, our mortality is this like very, uh, um, interesting motivator and guiding force for, for, uh, you know, for how we, how we view the world. It's fascinating, uh, the topic of mortality and how important that is. Right. Uh, cause I think when you get reminded of that it focuses everything else. Right, right. And, and so much of our society is designed, and this is what the book talks about, is, is kind of designed to build these trappings that help you forget about the fundamental mortality. Sleep, second question, uh, comes from our friends who are ready to sleep. Yes. They have this thermoregulated bed. I sleep on it every night. I love it. Um, I put mine really, really cold, and I sleep like a little baby. What's your sleep schedule now, and how has that changed over the years? Um, I also have an eight sleep. Nice. <laughs> and it has markedly improved my sleep. So cheers to them. And, um, this is becoming a trend now on the podcast. I ask this question. Like, oh, I have an eight sleep. Of course. And, they, and then they go and they cut the clip and they put it on uh, the internet. And they're like, look at how smart we are. <laughs> um, I mean, it's probably one of the few things that actually can make you like Notice, no, notably smarter on a day to day basis, just getting a good night's sleep. So, yeah. It's crazy. It literally is crazy. Yeah. Why not? What did you used to do? Did you used to sleep like five, six hours or were you always a pretty good sleeper? Well, um, again, I'm, I'm very pro Miami, so I don't mean to be 
anti-SF, but I'll be anti-SF in one dimension, which is no one has air conditioning in San Francisco. <laughs> and so I was just sleeping, you know, sweating, you know, sweating bullets. And everyone said, oh, you're going to be so warm here in Miami. I'm like, no, no, actually, I'm having to adjust to like set the AC to the right temperature. I'm actually too cold most of the time. So I got to adjust yes. to that new reality. Yes. Uh, I love, I love it being cold. Uh, most people ask me like, you're in Miami. Why do you always wear a hoodie? It's cause literally we keep the office cold. As yeah. Well, I mean, look right? at me, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, last question is aliens. Are you a believer or non-believer? Um, in the, um, in the science fiction movie aliens, I think it's one of the best movies of all time and actually just rewatched it the other night. Uh, as far as the, um, as far as the actual extraterrestrials, um, I don't know. I think I think that's the only fair answer to give. But all right, I sure hope they're not like the James Cameron aliens. Um, I'm with you on. I think everyone's with you. Yeah, on that, that would one. be bad. <laughs> that would be bad. Well, one question you have for me. Um, you know where? Um, so what would you like to see happen in Miami next? Like what? What's your vision for the next year of all this? I think just having more founders start more companies here and having more success. Like I'm a big believer that success begets success. And therefore, if you have big companies built here, then people will spin out, they'll create their own companies, big exits, then people get capital, they can invest. And like, it just, you start the flywheel, right? Um, And so like, that's kind of like a bland answer, frankly, but like, I I think it's just like blocking and tackling like, Hey, how do you make a place a tech hub? Same way that Silicon Valley made themselves a tech hub, right? Like, get investment, build big companies, start new companies, get investment, build big companies. And like, and you just start the flywheel. And the next thing you know, like the institutional knowledge of how do you build big companies gets built up in a space. People come to that place because they want capital, they want knowledge and they want workers, right? And you're off to the races. And so like, we're pretty damn far down the road already right. uh, in terms of some of the companies that have moved here. Now you just got to start the flywheel and do, do more and more and more of it faster and faster. Well, we should look at co-investing on a Miami company together. Okay. So I'm, Do I'm you actually, have some? Uh, maybe. I don't want to. I don't want to spill the beans here right. on camera. But like, let's 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 uh, let's work together. J- on this. Just send it my way. <laughs> All right. Where can people find you? What Bobby at formcapital.com? Bobby at formcapital.com. I'm at RSG on Twitter, and that's about it. How did you get RSG? Let's have, oh, hold on. You well, those are my initials. I was I just not that, know. I was just really early. I just was, really early. Got yeah, the initials yeah. and done. If you want to add me on Facebook, here's a here's a flex for the kids at home. Right. right. Uh, Facebook.com/slash/g Wow. <laughs> Too bad no one actually uses Facebook usernames for anything. So that Facebook. one was Facebook.com slash G. That's pretty good. Uh, but that one's a total whiff because uh, no one, like who who cares about Facebook usernames, right? So I have Facebook.com slash Pomp. That's pretty good. Uh, and at the time when I was working there, they didn't give out the four letter names. And I like begged. I was like, come on, like, I got to get this. I got to get it. You got to get it. Uh, And eventually I got it. And I was like, yes. And I can't believe I'm about to tell a story. The way that I convinced them to give it to me was uh, Boz has slash Boz, B-O-Z. And I was like, he's got three letters. I'll even take a fourth letter. (laughs) Just give me slash pop. So finally I found out who who was doing it and got it and whatever. But slash, I've never heard of a one letter. There's, there are a few of us. Obviously, there's less than uh, less <laughs> than the numbers than- in the alphabet. Yeah, <laughs> less than the number of letters in the alphabet. I love it. Yeah. All right, and then uh, formcapital.com dot uh, Formcapital.com. Yeah. All right. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for doing this. We'll do it again. This was so fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me.